Champion, it's time for cat massage. Petting is just randomly petting. Most people will go mid-back. Eh. Hi, everybody. What's going on? I'm holding the mic like a, like a singer, like a person who's passionate about singing. I'm on a stage, and it's This Week in Mormons. I am Jeff Openshaw. It's nice to be here with all of you. Uh, thank you for taking the time to listen to our Weave production this week. You can find all of our podcasts at thisweekinmormons.com, and also, of course, wherever you get podcasts. And I want to give a special plug. Spotify, by the way, if you're a Spotify listener, and there, there is a growing number of you, I look at the data. Spotify now supports reviews of podcasts. So if you listen to this show on Spotify, leave a review in Spotify for us. It's legit. This isn't like iTunes where it doesn't matter as much, but I still encourage you to do it on Apple Podcasts. It matters a bit more for Spotify. And if we are going to dominate our very niche space, it takes you people, it takes an army. So please do that. Subscribe. And a big shout out to our patrons on Patreon, patreon.com slash This Week in Mormons. Pitch in three bucks a month and help us pay for our various fees that make this a largely ad-free service just for you. I'm done plugging, and I'm happy to welcome back to the pod. I guess I didn't realize it's been like six months or something. But anyway, Patricia, Doxy, what's going on, old friend? How are you? Hello. It's it's good to be finally forgiven for whatever I said on the last one, and welcome back into the twim you just family. you're just a busy person you're a busy person you've got life i, I am a know? busy person and you know jeff maybe i'll have to give spotify a chance as you may know for their produced content they're only putting it on spotify so there are a couple podcasts that went yeah. to only spotify well, joe rogan i mean come on <laughs> um how to yeah. save a planet was one of my favorites and i have been stubbornly holding out on on listening to more episodes but maybe I'll go check out Twim and How to Save a Planet. There you go. In, I understand like the Spotify. business the business angle by getting exclusive podcasts. Oh, podcasts sure. Podcasts are big. I totally get it. But it makes me a little sad because podcasting for so long has been this realm of like all of us who make them just figure out where we're hosting them and how we're publishing them. And then you're just sending your feed all over. That's all about just syndicating right. it everywhere you can. Right. Syndication is basically not the game anymore. Now it's like a lot of the streaming models. No, it's about owning your content and having it exclusively on one platform. And the, uh, the, the advertising. Yeah, all those so, sorts of things. So I get you know, it. When you, want, when you want your advertisers to pay you the big bucks, you can do some exclusive content. Yeah. I forgot this. I should know this as a podcaster. Is Apple doing their own exclusive podcast yet? Are they doing their any? I don't know. Content? Because they could do a thing. Because other than that, the players are pretty small. Like TuneIn does some podcast right. support. You know, you know Spotify, uh, they're, they're, they're making a big play. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, they, yeah, they bought a couple companies and... Um, in some of those production companies and bringing it in house. But anyway, well, maybe, I mean, I'll, maybe I'll have to give them a chance. When you're making a lot of money from subscribers and paying artists a pittance compared to what they used to make right? in the world of CD, people actually buying CDs and stuff. I mean, you know, this, this you got money to burn, right? It's easy. Totally. Sorry, Taylor Swift. Well, anyway, it's great to be here with all of you this week. Uh, we've got an exciting week of Latter-day Saint news. I'll give you a little, little, little primer here what's going to happen. We've got Harry Reid passed away, which we talked about last week, but we had his memorial service. And of course, conservative Latter-day Saints are outraged about that we would dare send a representative there and say nice things about a Democrat. Um, should Zoom church continue? Should What should you tell? Apparently, I love this one we'll get to, but um, mom and dad need to take a shower. Thank you, sisters in Zion. We're going <laughs> to right. that. That one's fun. Ken Jennings gets to ask a Mormony question on Jeopardy. 
President Ballard wants us to smile our way through COVID, uh, some Temple Open House information, and not to be too much of a tease, but um, what do you do if you develop romantic feelings for your bishop? These are the a question I've wrestled with so many times, Jeff. Especially when, oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, the former representative from Oklahoma was never your bishop, I was about to say. No. No. Anyway. So that's, we've got all that and more. But first, just just check in, Patricia. Life good? Utah fine? How's, how's the things? Utah, like Virginia, actually got a lot of snow. So yeah. there was a good good week and a half there where we got lots of lots of snow. And um, this is the first time I've owned a home in the snow. So I did quite a lot of shoveling. It was pretty fun, actually. So I enjoyed it. Felt like a good little homeowner shoveling my shared driveway. Um, brought my daughter out. She This was her first real experience in snow. So yeah, I was she's enjoying That's it. Fun. Our legislative session is about to start up. So we'll see all sorts what a party. of fun, fun things happening there. Um, will, it's like, and it's always like, what will they think of next in, in the Utah legislature? What will they think of next? What fun ideas yeah. will they have this year? Right. That's cool. Yeah, we had a lot of snow last week. Um, it was a snow week for school. I couldn't believe it. Like they never went to school once. It, there was supposed to be the first week back from Christmas break. So Christmas break became three weeks long instead of two. And uh, I'm just glad they can go to school again. <laughs> I'm sure Danielle is as well. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, they they just got to play. I mean, they just sledded like every day and stuff. But it sure, was, uh, I didn't do any of it. I work in a basement without windows. But they get to. Sl- I don't even know if it's daylight right now. I have no idea. There are no windows here. I never know. Well, folks, let's dive in to the Latter Day Saint news. And there are, like I said, some interesting things to. Uh, it's an interesting week. Interesting pieces have come out, both straight up news and some stuff that kind of just comes from the blogosphere. Mm-hmm. Um. A lot of mixes. I'm just going to lead off, though, with the one that makes me the happiest because it's going to get my juices flowing here. Open house reservations are now available for the Washington, D.C. Temple Open House. We have been it's been it's been a long winter here for us in the D.C. region. Our temple has been closed since March 20, 2018. Mm-hmm. It's been crazy long. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Crazy, crazy long huh? and since we've been able to go to the temple. It's longer than that, though, right? I mean, I said, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. So anyway, it's coming back online as we've discussed here on the pod. But uh, now you can get your tickets to the open house. If you're going to be in the D.C. area, you go to the little website, dctemple.org. What's cool is, in my experience, most you can you can walk up to temple open houses usually. Maybe that's how you have to wait until mm-hmm. like the fitting you can fit for a group something like that but i've also been when you can make in philadelphia you could make reservations for a specific time that you were going to go and and go through uh in dc they're not doing that there's no tickets for the open house experience itself you only have to have reservations to get parking or to be picked up on the shuttle uh, hmm. from the metro station that's sort of nearby. So that's the only thing you need for the online reservations. They are going quickly. They're they're uh, being taken fast. So if you're interested in that, folks, get in there. Come come visit us in DC. Tell me if you're in town. I will go with you gladly. We will all be friends. We will go to the temple. It'll be wonderful. I'm excited to see what changes they've made. One of the ones they've teased, we've heard about. Patricia, do you remember how, you know, the baptistry, of course, is on the lowest level there, right? Right, right. Um, but usually when the youth would go there, they would just walk down that ramp because there's the overpass, you know, and they'd go outside apparently. And there are stairs that go from the, 
recommend. No, let's go down to the, I'm sorry. No, I forgot. Those go down to the uh, distribution center. So anyways, they have apparently built a new staircase, like past the, uh, the cause, the viaduct, whatever we want to call it, that goes into the temple itself. And so you can actually go to the front desk, then go through that nice hallway mm-hmm. to the main foyer that has all the paintings. And now they, they built a new staircase that then goes into the baptistry. This probably makes sense because next to the baptistry was the uh, cafeteria, which is just not even used. So I'm, I'm taking a shot in the dark that they tore out a lot. Most, if not all of the cafeteria now have some new means of getting down to the basement. I don't know what else it'll be. I think most of it will probably be the same, but it's going to be great. So- yeah. I'd be curious to see um, as maybe your listeners may know, I was out in the DC area for a while and I've wondered what changes, what changes they'll make. But yeah, I remember at one point in the Mesa temple, they sw- we used to go in a side door and then they switched it. So they'd bring us in through the front front door and you'd go by yeah. the desk and they'd kind of escort you and, um, you know, see a little bit of that temple experience. And it's a mix. Like when I grew up going to the LA temple, um, it has, there was its own side entrance for the baptistry area. And that's where we met. We never went through the front and that temple's humongous. So I guess that's fine. But, uh, yeah, good for them. Yeah, I, have, I, I, I hope they kept all that wood paneling. One can only pray. Yeah, you know, I would have been, I it, w- it would have been fun to be on the team to refinish the paneling, but I hope they didn't take away all of the kind of um, 70s kitschy, charm. Yeah, kitschy oh. charm, <laughs> um, but maybe just updated it a little bit. Yeah, probably a bit. I've heard there's some new, I don't know, I'm excited. It's been so long. I don't know how it'll be different at this stage you know it's been a very very long time since yeah now that i don't live downtown i haven't seen the progress on the salt lake temple for a while we used to you know do walks there daily should go back and check it out well we know the project as we talked about about a month ago has now been extended quite a bit um unsurprisingly they're they're doing a project now it's going to be at least like five and a half maybe six years until it's all done so yeah yeah crazy times so come to dc everyone come be with me Okay. Come, come worship with we'll me. We'll book some tickets. Okay. Sounds good. So, uh, Jeff, um, I don't know what, what articles stuck out to you, but um, there was the Economist piece on, you know, can Mormonism become a global religion? And to be honest, I wasn't that impressed with the article. It sounds like he maybe just like Wikipedia Morgan Mormonism. <laughs> but I did, I did think some <laughs> of the points he brought up. So, uh, if you haven't read it, um, he he brings up three questions, which perhaps could hold the church pack from becoming global. The first was the centralized nature of the church and the church's wealth, leadership and theological teachings emanating from Salt Lake City. The second, he said, is that a congregation, the congregation of a Mormon joins based on where they live. And he thought that that was one limitation is that yeah. it didn't give people choice. And then the third one, the second and third one stuck out to me as a little like, oh, interesting that these are the the two that you're pulling out. But the third one was um, Mormons might reform their missionary practices in order to retain members more, which I thought was a little odd because he's saying, hey, you know, people don't really resonate with sending uh, predominantly white members from America to other countries. But I think the church is trying to make it more local and sometimes it's just a lack of supply but I, th- I think the church has really been doing that um and where possible using more local missionaries um the the point about uh mormons not having the option of joining i i mean i can resonate there are some wards that i've 
really enjoyed and resonated with leadership and other mm-hmm. wards where it's honestly been a struggle. I think about my two wards that I've been in here in, in Salt Lake. And one was, one was a big struggle to be yeah. honest. Um, just viewpoints very different for me, a very different demographic. And I think one of the values of having it being geographic based is you really do get to know the community and you have to learn to interact with people that you wouldn't normally interact with. And it has some pros there, but I think some cons are not really finding a community that you would choose and resonate with. Mm-hmm. So those points, but I don't know what, what did you, what did you, I'd be curious about what you thought about the first point, which is, which I do think is a challenge for a global church is that um, the theology and the leadership and the wealth pretty much resides in, in Salt Lake city still. I think I'm going to talk to that for a second. I do want to respond to your talking about, you know, congregations being where they are. I agree mm-hmm. with you and on all these fronts. Sometimes it's hard. You're you're stuck where it is, but it, it forces you to be exposed to people and work with people. You probably wouldn't if you were just choosing your surroundings at the same time, how fun would it be if we opened up wards to, and remember ward, by the way, historians comes from the idea of like a ward of a city. It was a geographic area. Like even in DC, DC has wards, you know, the mm-hmm. new Orleans has like the lower ninth ward was famous. And that's where it comes from. It was from way back when they, when they planned out these cities and the pioneers in Missouri and stuff and Kirtland and we had certain wards and that's, that was your congregation. Um, but if we opened it up, Honestly, wouldn't a little healthy competition potentially benefit wards? Like it might be terrible because everyone would flock to like the one ward that was doing better or had its stuff together, but it might kind of like force the hand of of local leadership to think, man, we what do we do then to get people to be here in our congregation? What do we do then to make them feel at home and want to be a part of our ward? Um, not to disparage the other wards around you, but it might be a way to kind of think strategically in that sense, what you can do to be Oh, the other downside of it, though, I think during the pandemic is you literally have like unmasked and masked wards, like completely sure. like segregating from one another. <laughs> Which, Which I, is, I think I think we have that already, Jeff. A, but a little bit. There are different right. communities. So yeah. Anyway, yeah, I do think that wards could compete a little bit more. I think in conversations about why people go, quote unquote, unactive, the blame is usually put on the person not being faithful enough or being of offended. Course could never um, be anything else. But I well. think some wards could say, hey, is the environment we are creating the kind of environment that people want to seek out? And, you know, it's easy for people to say, oh, that there are so many blessings in service and, you know, interacting with people you don't normally interact with. Yeah. But it, the story changes a little bit when you find yourself in the minority and you're always feeling like either ideologically or racially or maybe socioeconomically and feeling like you're always in the minority can be exhausting. So, you know, it, it could be good for wards to really think about what are what's the kind of experience that we want to create for people that is meaningful for them. Yeah. And so that kind of leads into the first point that you asked about. I mean, I think that's an issue. They, they interviewed Jana Reese, of course. They interview a number of like kind of prominent demographers within the church. Matt Martinick, for mm-hmm. example, um, was... Uh, Patrick, what's his face? I think gets a a tip of the hat, and and Jana Reese. One thing they mention is the fact that like we're trying to be more open about music after some handbook updates. You know, what could we allow that's culturally significant that might be a bit different? Um, I think these are good examples of everything not being so Salt Lake centric. But it is true that stuff 
the wealth, like I says, the wealth, leadership, and theological teachings still emanate from Salt Lake City. I think we have been changing a bit more, though, in the past 10 years. It's still very much the case that everything emanates from Salt Lake City, but I feel like we've tried to do more to be thoughtful about the fact that we are a global church. This article is asking whether we can thrive as a global religion. It's not mm-hmm. It's not asking if we are a global religion. We are, but whether we can thrive in that context. Um, and it makes me worry about like this, the missionary force. I, I, know I might be getting this wrong, but I think it was President McKay. Big time paraphrasing here, Twimsters, but uh, let me know what I'm, what, if I'm spot on. But I believe they said something along the lines of, Ideally, in the church, we're at the point where membership is strong enough around the world that people just serve their missions in their own countries. And while I think it, that's the gist of it, I would love the source. I looked it up. I had this thought looking into this before, and I tried to find it, but I couldn't find it. But I know I read that somewhere. Um, that's an interesting idea. Like, I'd be sad if I was in, thinking about it, like not having served a mission in Spain. Like, I'm really right. glad I served a mission in Spain. It was a very formative experience for me. At the same time, I have to think if Spain were full of Spaniards doing all the missioning, they might have a little bit more luck yeah. with the locals. And that could be, like you mentioned, like, you know, you go to Africa and like how, what are the optics if we're sending a bunch of American kids over there? The church is doing well in Africa, but it's even stronger. It, it, this goes back to the Alma and Amulek thing, right? The whole reason when Alma was struggling to teach the people, but when Amulek spoke up and they looked at Amulek and they were like, oh, he's one of us. He's... He's our neighbor. He's from our town. He's not some outsider coming in here to tell us what we're doing wrong. Mm-hmm. He's on the same level, but he's part of our community. Obviously, that same lesson could be applied to missionary work. We're just not there yet in terms of numbers. You know, we just don't have that as many. We have way more North American missionaries to choose from. Yeah, uh, than we do. And else. you know, one one thing that I, where I thought he was going to go and and not is, and I uh, just wait for a second. Let me get to my point here, but. Um, I thought he was going to go not focus so much on numbers and baptisms, but on Mm -hmm. retention Um, and not just retention as well, but serving for the sake of service instead of service to like get people to, you know, do lessons Um, because, you know, thriving can not only just be thriving in terms of growth, but thriving in terms of reputation, in terms of community engagement. Um, So I, I personally would love to see, an, a, a, a truly more service oriented mission where it's focusing less on proselytizing and more on developing those types of community engagements. Um, that's, that's a mission I would really love my kids to do is um, one that is more service-based and, you know, organizing and leading yeah. service and taking time out of their lives to do that for, you know, 18 to two years, 18 months, to two years, I, th- I think would be a great experience. And we do have an element of that. You know, they have changed some of the, uh, what was it years ago? You know, they changed the way they issue mission calls now. They, mm-hmm. You know, whether it's they service mission, different types of missions, you apply to be a missionary full stop. And what you wind up doing, I mean, you might still lean very likely that you could go on a proselytizing mission, but that's not a given anymore. And I love that they've unified that experience. And it's not because it always, it always felt a little less than like, oh, well, you're not going to go on a proselytizing mission. We'll apply for you to be a service missionary. No, now it's like, these are all missions that serve in different, different capacities, different focuses. That's fine. And it's, it's kind of part of um, mission culture or, you know, church culture to be excited of the, the feeling of it being unknown and opening your mission call. But it would be great if there were a little bit more choice in the matter. And, you know, maybe somebody is more cut out to do a service, um, to focus on humanitarian aid. 
um, and would be less excited about proselytizing. So maybe introducing some more choice in there, but. And like I, you could, get, yeah, yeah. And you can get excited, you know, like it changes when you're out there a bit too, of course. Sure. I mean, that's, yeah. that's normal. But um, I, I do think the point, like part of the church's strengths, but then also its drawbacks is its theological centralization, you know, correlation. There is a strength to that. Uh, but there's definitely a drawback. And I do feel like they've been more intentional about um, seeking diverse experiences, but it's really hard to see culture. You know, it's really hard to see when it's your own preferences um, mm-hmm. over what's right, what's actually a moral decision. Um, so I do think that's limiting. Um, and, you know, until you get um, really diverse leadership, you aren't going to see the real embrace of a, or in my opinion, of a thriving global religion. Um, And in my opinion, that would also include um, a diversity in gender representation. Uh, But that's another conversation. All right, Kate Kelly, take it easy there. (laughs) Um, Do you think like, do okay. Do you think uh, as a sidebar, do you think we're doing better with gender representation? Do you feel like we've moved the needle in in positive ways, even if there's even if there's work yet to be done? You know, and Jeff, this is this is actually going back to my last time on the pod. um, That was one of the articles we talked about, which is um, the report that was released on an update of like, where have we gotten better um, and where, at least in the author's perspective, uh, we haven't progressed. Um, I think that I think that there are a lot of policy and logistical reasons why women aren't in the room to make a decision that I don't think are theologically based. I think it's tradition based. I'd like Mm -hmm. to see those go away. I think that you always reach a better decision and consensus when more viewpoints are represented. Um, And just the way we have it set up, even in ward council, you know, I would, we would be having a discussion and the bishopric would say, okay, we've had a very good discussion. The bishopric is going to go and make the decision. Which oh, I can't can see that. why they do that. Yeah, we should. But do at the that. same time, it's like, well, you, you're essentially just closing yourself off to people who are like you to make this decision instead of making it with a diversity of perspectives included. So, in this instance, it's gender based, but I think that also we we do need a healthy dose of leadership um, from more global populations and make decisions and policy changes that reflect that. And that's hard to do in your centralized religion because so much of an expression of one's faith is culturally based. Um, and maybe not the faith itself, but the expression of that faith is very cultural. Um, so it, it makes it hard to have a centralized theology and a unified church experience, um, but also could could be more meaningful to um, different countries. So, you know, a Mormons, uh, Mormon theology started from a very American, very time-based, like the, the questions that Joseph was answering with Mormon theology came from a very specific time and place. And as we grow, can we expand that and let other culture, let other, the questions of other cultures be answered by Mormon theology as well? Um, and I, I think they are, there has been explosive growth, but explosive attrition as well. Um, in in different areas. So I think this is an open question, but I think it's one that the church is actively seeking out on. How can we 
not make it just lip service, but actually make it more yeah. global. We'll move on. But when you're saying that, I'm thinking about Ward Council. Um, I've been fortunate well before they started enacting a lot of the organizational changes that we've had over the past couple of years. I'd been in like PECs where the bishop on his own accord said, like, I want the Relief Society president in here too. Like, it doesn't say that in the ha- in the handbook or it didn't back then necessarily. But the bishop's like, yeah, this is not just going to be the high priest group leader, the eldest quorum president, the ward mission leader and me. Like, we need the we need Relief Society in here for this representation. PEC is gone, of course. Um, and I think it's great that we have the ward council and the way we do things. One thing I've noticed, a slippery slope. I don't think this is a huge issue, but it. You can see how it could be because we've elevated the responsibilities in many ways of the Relief Society and Elders Quorum president to take a lot off the bishop's plate, which is a good thing. And they and they should work t- in tandem, which I think they do by and large, to get the work of the ward done. The one potential downside to this is you've taken a situation where before you had everybody at the same level trying to make decisions at the highest governing bodies of your ward. Now you have elders quorum and relief society down a level, kind of managing a lot of affairs in the ward, but that kind of still leaves the Bishop alone again, if this makes, Mm -hmm. this makes sense. Um, And in some ways can remove that, that structure that you could have had before to have women, more directly involved. I obviously don't think there's any kind of bad intent for anything like that, but you could see how that could maybe be the case where you wind up with Elders Quorum and Relief Society uh, being kind of their own little fiefdoms and having a lot to do when they're very busy and they're doing great things. But you could see how that could kind of leave the, the bishopric yeah. off on its own again, off on its own, yeah. a little removed in that sense. All right. Moving along here, our good friend, Friend of the pod. No, he's not a friend of the pod, but I did meet him once. Um, so you heard last week that a former Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid, passed away. The twin sisters talked about that. And, and they talked a lot about some of the things he did for the church that people probably aren't even aware of. He worked a lot behind the scenes to to further the church's mission uh, in Washington. So, But this past week, they had his memorial service in Nevada. And of course, a number of dignitaries went. Pro- former President Barack Obama, President Joe Biden was there, Vice President Harris, uh, Chuck Schumer, all kinds of folks were there. And also present was one M. Russell Ballard, the acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And the the articles don't go into any kind of detail about what kind of relationship they had or if, if President Ballard in particular had a significant relationship with Harry Reid. Not totally sure. But in his remarks, um, President Ballard was very just like complimentary. He described President, uh, he described Harry Reid as a man of faith in word and deed, described him as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ with a firm belief that we are all brothers and sisters, children of a loving father in heaven, which is a great, nice thing to say. Um, and and also love this one part, Patricia and I were talking before, he shared a little anecdote. Uh, I did not know that President Ballard had lost sight in one of his eyes. Yeah, I hadn't known that until either. I read this. And so he said, in recent years, they had a similar plight. Um, he said, we each lost sight in one eye at about the same time. We knew Harry Reid did. He said, he lost sight in his right eye and I in my left. And we used to remind each other that we could walk down the street arm in arm. He could help me see things on the left and I could help him see things on the right. And he kind of said that with a chuckle. Um, kind of leaning into the assumption that Harry Reid was a Democrat and I guess President Ballard probably is a Republican or something like that. You know, great. But I think that's great. I love I love that there's love here. I love that there's love here. I think we forget in our crazy internecine days as Latter-day Saints of late that 
our brethren surely have political persuasions, but they're not thinking that way. And they recognize that there's good across different people from different political persuasions. And we can just be happy about that. And of course, this was a manifest, as you might imagine, on the, for some reason, still open comment section on the church's Facebook page <laughs> where they published this, this same article referencing President Ballard speaking at the memorial. People saying things like, Harry Reid was an active leader with the modern day Gadianton Gandhi- Roberts. Oh, Why speak at a man's funeral who told lies? Um, it just goes on and on. And, you know, we've talked a lot about this over the past while, especially anything, you know, COVID related. All right. Um, I appreciate the people who just said like, this is a great opportunity to bear witness about Jesus Christ and uh, that we have, and we're trying to keep our relationship, especially with government, civil. Harry Reid didn't care about our country. This reminds me, remember they did that fundraiser after Hurricane Katrina years ago when Kanye said George Bush doesn't care about black people. Remember That's that? right. Look that up on YouTube, folks. It's It's like, it's not funny to say no one cares about black people, but it's funny because it's this telethon to a fundraiser and Mike Myers is up there when people cared about Mike Myers in 2005. And, uh, he reads some, let's, you know, some teleprompter stuff about, you know, what we can do to be better. And he, and then it goes over to Kanye standing next to him and Kanye just looks at the camera and says, George Bush doesn't care about black people. And then the camera cuts away immediately to a shocked Chris Tucker. Who's <laughs> like, Oh uh, yeah. Uh, okay. I digress. Anyway. Um, I it's there's people who have good comments, of course, who don't believe on Paul, who, you know, said, I don't agree with his politics, but he's obviously a devout man. I think some people might forget about some of Harry Reid's stances on some things were a little more moderate than some of his party might suggest to mm-hmm. not always and not over any evolved over time like anybody else. But I'm just I was glad to see uh, President Ballard go and just share some nice remarks about somebody. And who cares about the politics? Just say this person was a good person. Yeah. Yay. I agree, Jeff. Yeah, I um. I actually have become more politically engaged after moving away from DC. Um, but when I was in DC and went up to a fireside he gave up north, um, and I was really impressed about Harry Reid's experience and about him just saying, you know, taking taking your opportunities to serve others and yeah. always learn and have a compassionate mindset. Um, so it, it is nice to see, even though the church, you know, is a fitch, officially neutral, um, it does not always feel that way. So <laughs> it was good to have, um, to have them, uh, backing that up, uh, with sending somebody and president Ballard speaking to, you know, his personal feelings towards, yeah. um, Harry Reid and, and his, uh, service. So, and I'm reminded of like when Harry Reid spoke at BYU and he kind of famously said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, I'm not a Democrat in spite of my LDS faith. I'm a Democrat because of it. Sure. Yeah. And good for him. And of course, there's people who are upset about this. But hey, I have to remember at the same time, there were also people who were very upset when like the Tabernacle Choir was going to perform at President Trump's inauguration. Right. And that's the whole other side of it. So, you know, we can all do better. It's at the end of the day, the church is all about just like furthering the mission of civility and the gospel Mm -hmm. and trying to find that common ground. So, yeah, there we go. We're half an hour in and we have... only hit on a couple stories, Patricia, because the the banter's so good. It's just so good. <laughs> uh, well, there there were two. Um, I mean, one article and then one mention. Uh, well, a blog. I was going to oh, call okay. it a thought piece, but I think that's a little generous. <laughs> um, one one piece from uh, the Salt Lake Tribune. Um, a discussion of queer Latter Day Saints wondering if they can date, and then a blog. 
Um, I won't read what I titled it in my notes, but his oh, thoughts of how you, you could use the Pearl of Great Price to answer the question um, that the Trib is asking, which is what's the line and, and how do you be um, a part of the LGBT community and also the community um, in the Mormon faith. So, you know, you and I talked, you on the pod, you guys have talked about this concept a lot about, you know, where, where are queer Latter-day Saints in their, what are the lines for them? How do they date? And I just want to be clear, I'm like not speaking for anyone's experience and or passing judgment. And I really do think that this is something that people struggle with. And if you are struggling with it, um, I, I really feel for you if you are experiencing it, but not struggling and really enjoying your, your expression of your sexuality. I do not judge you either. Um, but it, it was good to hear about different uh, on the spectrum from this trip article, different spectrum of people's actual experiences and exploring where this line is. Mm -hmm. um, they referenced David Archuleta, who I think was a great example of yeah. coming out and yeah. being honest and saying like, look, I don't know where this is headed, but I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. I think being vocal about, about figuring it out and trying different things and trying to be faithful. I think it's a really, really good it's good for everyone to hear um, both, you know, people who are still, uh, still figuring their sexuality out. It's good to have models for them um, of people who are going before them and trying to figure it out. And it's also good for people who don't know a lot of individuals who are openly questioning um, or part of the queer community to see that, you know, there's a spectrum of experience and everyone's just trying to figure out how to be, a disciple of Christ, um, and they're trying to figure it out for themselves. So, what yeah. struck you, what struck you about this article, Jeff? I know this is something you've you've discussed on the pod a lot. Yeah, and I would say I don't think it like broke new ground, at least for what I've thought about for this issue. But I'm glad to see it get more coverage, uh, perhaps because we just wonder, like, yeah, where is that line? Because, and of course, there's like like they interviewed uh, Richard Osler, who was on the podcast about a year ago. Great episode, folks. Go find that one. Um, but talking about kind of, you know, bishops roulette, because you can have different mm -hmm. bishops tell you different things, like what's okay. And sometimes I think as, as Latter-day Saints, we like to, we like to be prescriptive in our discipleship. We want someone to tell us like, here is what you can and cannot do. Um, and it's understandable. You want to like keep the rules and the law of chastity, but also, you know, it's on us to kind of pray about it and try to think some of these things out. Uh, I don't, I don't envy anyone who goes through these experiences and has to kind of navigate these waters. It's not easy, obviously, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and it's even referenced here because they, they interviewed Stacey Harkey, who was on Studio C, and he, he, that's how they lead off. And he says, like, he went to his bishop and said, like, look, I'm active and stuff, but I want you to know I'm going to, like, I'm going to date men. Um, that reminds me of um, Tom Christofferson, right. Elder Christofferson's mm -hmm. brother, who recently said, after being celibate for a number of years, I'm going to date. His might be the biggest like green light. Cause it's like, he's mm -hmm. saying I can date and you, I am, I'm not a betting man, but I have to imagine he and Todd might've had a discussion about this, this sort of issue before he went more public about, about that part of it. And so we just don't know where the line is. I'm sure people want to know where the line is because they want to know what they can, can righteously experience. Um, and I know it's not easy because the, at the end of the day, you can preach chastity and say, you need to be chased, apply by the same rules that everyone else does. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the only fundamental difference is the, the straight Latter-day Saints can eventually get married and be sexually active and do those things, which you just cannot do 
as a gay member. So I don't know. So is it okay to simply be like, yep, I've got, I have a boyfriend and, you know, we don't cohabitate and we don't do anything wrong, but we might, we hold hands and kiss and stuff, but that's where I don't have anything to like add. It's like, that's where it gets murky. Cause some people might say like homosexual behavior, not feelings, but behavior is the issue. So is that homosexual behavior? I mean, kissing in and of itself is not homosexual behavior. It's just, it's just sensuality. Right. So it's like, I, I don't know. We don't have the answers. Right. And I think the important thing is people just have to think it out and figure it out. And Jeremy Goff also does not have the answers. If I, <laughs> you want me to segue into the other piece. Well, one, no, one, no. one point I will make, yeah. and you touched on this, Jeff, is it seemed like all people that they interviewed said that the church leaders are trying to, they've made a shift. Right. And they said, mm-hmm. okay, whether straight or queer single Latter-day Saints are, are held to the same standard. But all people that they talk to are saying that's not exactly true for some of those reasons that you said, um, because the end goal is held back for gay members with, you know, the thought that you can't advance it to marriage. Um, and so, uh, you know, when one of the interviewees said it's great PR and utter rubbish, I hope that changes. I hope there is through these conversations and these individuals, you know, I, unfortunately, I don't think it's on David Archuleta's uh, responsibility to kind of pave the way for people, but I'm really grateful that he's, you know, spoken openly and honestly, because I do think that if we're going to figure out a path for people, we need to see it and we need to talk about it. So, so I'm really grateful to him, even though I don't think he owes us anything, but I'm, I'm grateful to him for speaking about it openly. Um, and go, go, is it go, go Goff or go, go Jeff? No, it's Goff. His name is Jeremy Goff, but his name okay. is go, go, because he's always on the go. He's always on the go. To hell. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't go that far, but honestly, Jeff, I I couldn't finish his blog post because I found, I mean, I disagree with his conclusions, but I also found his arguments infuriating. I think, uh, so one of your TWIM uh, Facebook followers, uh, Rachel Clausen, shout out to Rachel. This did sum up some of my frustrations is that he, he builds in the premise that we're all spiritual beings and the LGBT community wants to define people by their sexuality, but we're not sexual beings. We're spiritual beings. But then he shifts and he says that Godhood is parenthood within a heterosexual marriage. So then he defines the ultimate spiritual beings by his sexuality. And it was just this very tenuous circular argument that I just, it, it, it it was it made it hard for me to kind of get through his Mo- uh, most of his process. pieces are like that. There's another okay. one I found called the lie about loving the LGBTQ community that many many Latter Day Saints are believing. Uh, yeah, the lie. Look, I, I I've never been impressed. Oh, what the heck? Who cares? I try to be like charitable, but like Jeremy Goff is a bad blogger. Okay. And it's not just that I don't agree with his positions. He's not a persuasive or thoughtful writer. He's like writing stream of conscious stuff. And I don't know where he's from or where he actually grew up or anything like that. So I want to avoid any stereotypes, but it comes up like someone who's just raised in a certain bubble of thought or, or honestly, I would have seen myself writing some nonsense like this, like immediately after my mission, like when I'm super gung ho and like, yeah, righteous, hardcore. And I just, um, I mean, there's an audience for this 
And the article is specifically about how the pearl of great price holds the solution to the LGBT plus issue in the church. Curiously, he has dropped the Q now. There's no just the LGBT plus issue in the church. It's the it's the issue in the church. And he's yeah, he talks about being your how being your authentic self is wrong. He keeps talking about the LGBT movement and how it stands in contrast to all sorts of things. And he does quote um, Elder Bednar. Elder Bednar, is the, he had that quote, that, that talk years, a couple of years ago when he said like, you know, there are no, there are, not, there are no homosexual members of the church. We are not defined by sexual attraction. We are not defined by sexual behavior. We are sons and daughters of God. Some people took issue with that. You understand what Elder Bednar was trying to say. He's trying to say like, look, we're all different and we have things, we have things that do express who we are. And I hate to sure. say, and things that do define us. But at the end of the day, God doesn't see us that way. God sees us as his children and he loves us. Full stop, right? That's great. And that's absolutely true. But some people take this to read someone saying like, no, no one should say they are a homosexual. That term is loaded and it is part of a a terrible movement. Because like this, the world demands that we label ourselves by our gender pronouns and orientation. Oh, is this, where was this great line? There's this terrible, oh, here we go. Just as... The idolatry of old sacrificed children to false gods. Oh, so too must we sacrifice our status as chi- as a child of God to appease the pagan gods of wokeness. And they must do this. For to allow the idea to exist that we are children of God is to acknowledge that we have divine potential, the potential for godhood. Um, I love that line, the whole wokeness thing. I just read this and I think of that meme that just says, why not both? You know, that one of that girl says, why not both? I, I'm not arguing like for like that there should be temple marriage for gay people. I don't like, I don't know anything about that. All I'm saying is I believe you can, um, seek to be loving and understanding of our, of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you are sacrificing your faith at the altar of false gods at the altar of wokeness per se. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think you can have a little bit of both and be a little nuanced in your thinking. And Jeff, I I think it's fair to say that I've met a lot of people over my life. Some of them have been heterosexual. Some of them have been homosexual that I think are further along in their journey to becoming godlike than me. Um, And I don't think that their sexuality needs to hold them back from becoming that better, more loving person. Um, So uh, this is definitely a point that Gogo Goff and I will have to diverge. Another of your Facebook commenters, Christopher Nicholson said, I'm also still waiting for anyone to explain how being alone until you die gets you any closer to exaltation than being married to the wrong gender. And I do think that this is where Gogo Goff maybe needs to expand his circle of friends. Um, I would be surprised if he passes by um, a member of this community to get their thoughts um, and he also completely disregarded that, you know, kind of a complicated history of the Pearl of Great Price. So just just many, uh, just many flaws in his arguments that, you know what, I, I don't even think people need to read it. Um, but but I might link to it want. just so you can leave comments on the article, people. I, I, <laughs> well, one thing, and there's also the assumption that um, whether or not like and Peter Filler said this in the comments as well. He's sort of waiting for the church to finally come out and say definitively whether or not sexual orientation changes in the next life. We really haven't said stuff about that. We just kind of ignore that potential doctrinal uh, point. And so I'd say until that time, let's just hang out and not write blog posts 
that argue, you know, basically like you will stop being gay when you're resurrected and then speak disparagingly about folks. So I will link to this article in the notes, folks. Not that I want to give anybody the traffic. I don't. I don't. Yeah. But I want you to write some, maybe write some comments because he, he, he cannot help himself but respond to people's comments, even if they disagree, if, if they're, he do, which is good to his credit. He's not deleting comments that might disagree mm-hmm. with him in some other articles. You know, so. but I, I will say, Jeff, and like I said, I, I do not speak from the, for this community and I'm only expressing my perspective and conversations I've had with people, but some people don't really want their, some people I think really do do hope and pray and um, have faith that they will not struggle with this after they die. Some people say, you know what, this is a part of myself that I've come to love. I don't want this to change. And so how does that fit into this eternal theology? And I think we need to leave space for both of those people to have faith and hope in the world to come. And um, I don't know exactly how to do that. Uh, I try to do it in my own personal worship and my relationships with people and communities and showing love and support. Um, but, you know, different different people do want something different. And um, I think we should allow them the space to explore that. And recognize that we don't have all the answers right now. I mean, yeah, yeah this definitely. Is, this is a piece that looks like it seems like it would have been written like in the run up to Prop 8 in 2008 in California. Yeah. Like that. It, I, it's a weird time. All right. A couple quick Quick mentions for all y'all. Ken Jennings, as you know, has been splitting Jeopardy hosting duties um, after they announced their permanent host and then fired him in the same week because of sexist comments he'd once made. So Ken Jennings is there. And now, um, and by the way, this was not lost. I saw some other blog posted. Right now, the Jeopardy champion is a transgender woman. And and Ken Jennings, the Latter-day Saint, is the host. He's a pretty progressive member of the church. I don't know what his activity levels are, but it's that, that's neither here nor there. But one of the one of the answers, as it is on Jeopardy, was in 2018, the Mormon or LDS Church announced a course correction to stress the full name that mentions the Savior. And I guess the and so of course the answer is what is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints? Uh, the the person did not know. They just said, "What is the Church of the Latter Day Saints?" Oh, we hear that one all the time. Anyways, we made it on Jeopardy. So that's well, that's and especially because it does cut out part of the clue, which is the name of the Savior. But I, you know, in their defense, I did find this clue confusing. And it doesn't I actually like definitely knew the answer. Yeah, it felt more like just a straight up statement than an answer to a question. Jeopardy exactly because so. because the way it's worded is kind of funny. It just says in 2018 the church announced a course correction. Like it just it, it doesn't say like this church announced right. a, exactly. or this this church is proper named to this. It doesn't. It's it is kind of worded funny. Jeopardy. Get it together, Jeopardy people. I know. We need, um, we need some more vetting of those clues. I want to speak about something that people ask me about quite frequently, and I want to give massive props to our contributor and friend of the pod, Joe Peterson. Um, we get asked here and there, especially after talks like Elder Anderson's a, a little while ago in conference, you know, why have we not changed our name? Why do we still have the word Mormons in our title? I've spoken about it quite a bit. And one thing I've glibly said many times is I'll change mine. And once LDS Living changes their name, they're owned by the church and they're still dropping LDS right and left. So what's the deal, right? Um, kudos to Joe who actually contacted them and kudos to LDS Living for responding with a thoughtful, completely candid response about this issue. This is the kind of thing that it's easy on my side to be like, just to like ignore the issue and just say, well, I'll do it when LDS Living does it. Leave me alone. Um, so they actually responded to Joe and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but 
they said like, yeah, when we heard these words, you know, back in 2018, when, when everyone was talking about this, we immediately began discussions about changing our name and, and, um, you know, what, like, what do we do? Like, we don't use the word Mormon, but we do say LDS and we do a lot of things for faithful members of the church and Latter-day Saints. We spent a long time considering what this could be. We actually made a decision to change our name into something else and began on a whole rebranding plan. Curious they would say rebranding when the uh, br- when the church leaders have stressed the word rebranding is not to be used when discussing the demormoning of things, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but they actually took the proposed modification to the board of directors, and they were surprised that the board of directors said, no, you don't need to change LDS living because it does not refer to the name of the church. Members of the church are appropriately really referred to as Latter-day Saints, or in this case, LDS. Now that's not exact. So they've just opted not to change the name. Very curious to me because I have to imagine. I don't know if at the board of directors level, if we've got like top church leadership. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you knew what the board of at directors L- like. A like. D- Deseret book, yes. At LDS Living, not sure. And of course, we're different because we're not saying this week in LDS. We are saying using the Mormon word, but it is true that we are not referring to the name of the church either. We are never. We have never, and we've always been very good about that. On this podcast, we have, I, I, you know, we don't call it the Mormon church. Um, we talk about the broader community, the broader idea of Mormonism, the belief mm-hmm. system. And that's this week in Mormons is a deliberately grammatically wrong way to say this week in Mormonism. That's essentially what it is. Uh, but it's this week in Mormons. It's the people. Uh, so it's maybe not a complete cop out, but I thought it was very funny that LDS Living responded and was very candid about it and their experience doing so. So absolute kudos to them. Really appreciate transparency in that regard. And it provides maybe a little bit more cushion for what we're doing because we are we are speaking of the members, the culture, the things. We are not. We are. I am a hundred percent pro using the correct name of the church in every instance possible, even even if it means really unwieldy headlines. Um, <laughs> You're way you more committed to this, Jeff, than I am. I just frankly could not care less about I'm it. I'm trying to play ball. Like you can see a not- <laughs> a noticeable shift in late to in mid to in fall 2008 when at least mentions of like we stopped calling people like Mormons in our articles. We started saying Latter-day Saints in general. Headlines sure. I would shift so they didn't say more as needed. Like we try. We haven't changed the name of the podcast, but I think we've done pretty we've done a pretty wholesale adoption in terms of what we published that covers it. But they did specifically ask the journalistic community to shift uh, and I think adhering to people's style guides whenever possible is really helpful. So I, I think you have a pretty good reason um from a professional standpoint to do it that way. I guess I just can't get myself to care about it at all. Um, but I know some people care about it, but I like you, Jeff, will try when there is a broader spectrum of Mormonism, yeah. not referring to the, 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 you know, the Brighamite branch, <laughs> if you will, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. uh, who people typically refer to. And I think expanding your view, especially in discussions about this, people who identify as current members of the church, people who don't. Your podcast is about that whole spectrum. So it, it is true. It is true. And I like to say that. And we do like to get into history. At the same time, I mean, like, like I'll, I'll openly admit that most of what we're covering is the Brighamite sure. group, right? Sure. Like, I'm not covering news about the community of Christ. I'm, they've got news affecting their community. And there might be some stuff that elevate that gets elevated enough that we see it. But I'm not like getting in the weeds in their general world of what's going on, right? So sure. I. Yeah, no. That's a fair I, point. I, I, no, man, I appreciate you getting my back there, but I also want to not overrepresent myself and the love I'm giving to the Bickertonites. 
<laughs> you know, th- there are, there are some really interesting offshoots, um, even, you know, current offshoots that my husband really likes to stay up on. Um, you don't co- cover those as much, but still, I think using your- Mormon refers to the culture and the broader culture. So I'll is give your, you a pass. Is your husband joining the Denver snuffer movement? He is not, um, uh. but he is fascinated by them um, as you know, as well as some of the other, uh, some of the other spiritualists and Julie Rowe and um, Daybell, et cetera. He, he gobbles up that news. Um, but uh, yeah. All right. Well, anyways, <laughs> I thought you'd all appreciate that. I thought it was fascinating that we got a we got a direct response from yeah. you. So thank you, LDS Living. Appreciate it. Good for them. So a few more articles we wanted to cover. Um, uh, Jeff, uh, we talked a little bit briefly before you hit the record about the Ben Spackman um, article about the Old Testament. Um, if you haven't read it, um, I, I found it refreshing. He's an academic, um, but he at least in this this setting, he didn't have that affectation. Um, that sometimes <laughs> academics need to have, and maybe affectation affectation is a little pretentious of me to use. But he he was pretty easy to follow. Um, he did say he he started off saying like, "Hey, I'm publishing a couple articles on this, and I don't want to scoop myself." So he's saving some of those more juicy details for the articles themselves. Um, but it's kind of about the history of the Institute Manual for the Old Testament um, from I pub. I believe published in 1980. Is that right, Jeff? It's around. Yeah, it's the okay. 1980 Institute Manual, which yeah, I used yeah. to love. To, I used to love to reference when I taught gospel doctrine. I thought it had so many interesting tidbits. And it, stuff. you know, the, he points out that it's still used as a primary text in a lot of countries, just because you know translation is so far yeah. behind. And um, it's wait, 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 wait! I thought we were a global church. <laughs> we are a global church. Are you but, telling uh, me we have different curricula? <laughs> Oh my gosh. Uh, but he did go into a really fascinating history about the the ideas that were and were not included and kind of the history goes into the history of creationism um versus evolution at BYU and some of that history and you know sometimes if you feel like be, because you know the church for I think good reasons tries to say oh doctrine is eternal um, but it changes a whole heck of a lot. And, you know, Joseph Smith was always coming up with new and kind of crazy ideas to spark conversation. And that continued to happen. Um, it, but sometimes we just see our point in time and think, oh, this is what was always believed. But it, anyway, he brings up a really interesting conversation that was happening at BYU mm-hmm. and um, kind of who won and um, the the views that are represented in the Old Testament. Um, spoiler alert, he doesn't like the manual. Um, so just keep that in mind. Um, but I, my interest at is least deep. about Genesis, mostly about the book of Genesis. Sure. sure. Um, Songs and- of Solomon section is tight. Don't worry. Very good. <laughs> no revisions. Um, but you know, he piqued my interest. I'll probably check out his articles when, when they come out. He, he doesn't reveal the author's name. Um, because he, he said he didn't want to scoop himself, but, um, Gary, but it's, it's pretty interesting. He just, yeah, talks about ideas and how the brethren come to decisions about these, these topics where there's a lot of open questions. And, um, uh, I thought it was a good read. It's funny. Cause a lot of this is, I don't, I don't see him going after, I mean, the, he questions the content, but a lot of this goes after Gary for one, the unnamed author who wrote large sections of it. 
But I love what he taught this one paragraph and he says, you know, frankly, it's bad. It quotes Joseph Fielding Smith to force a false dichotomy between faith and evolution. It represents a re- as reliable and good sources for Latter-day Saints, a Seventh-day Adventist creationism pamphlet quoted for nearly 2,000 words. Uh, Melvin Cook, LDS chemistry professor and young earth creationist, well-known in the broader Christian world of creationism, and Emmanuel Velikovsky, fringe Russian-Israeli psychiatrist and catastrophist of the 1950s and 60s. These are the things like you don't know you're reading because you don't bother when you're in these manuals to look at the footnote and see where it comes from, um, which is fat. Like Velikovsky proposed that the dramatic accounts in the Bible, Egyptian, Chinese, and Mexican sources were simple eyewitness records of natural events. Mm-hmm. He also argued that Venus yeah. was a new planet yes. and had passed very near the Earth, perhaps it just several moved times. Around. It just yeah, it just did its thing. Yeah, changing the Earth's axis and causing severe electromagnetic, geological, and meteorological and other effects. And that was his um, his rationale for for the flood and for different events in Genesis. Um, yeah. is that Venus was passing close to the earth, this Velikovsky guy. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That so makes it's sense. Pretty, it was a pretty interesting um, to hear kind of the different, and, and the church has gone away from this thinking, right? They like, they don't have, they don't cover it directly, but they've kind of gotten away from it. But, you know, Ben talks about how culture and these kind mm-hmm. of stories and kind of the way you heard it growing up continues to be what you repeat in classes. So he says that um, come follow me is um, come follow me is easier to be updated, you know, kind of oh, for de- sure. de-emphasizes for sure. these aspects that are difficult to, um, to support. <laughs> um, but I, I, th- I thought reading about the history was pretty fascinating. Um, and the funny thing is the comments, there's many people who come to defend Gary, Gary being a, a righteous, noble, uh, inerrant individual, which I'm sure he's a great person, but he basically says, he describes Gary's political and religious views as landing to the right of Ezra Taft Benson. <laughs> which is pretty Which I didn't know was do. possible. <laughs> I didn't know it was possible either, Jeff. Um, I mean, yeah. in his view, the scriptures clearly taught that women should neither hold callings nor vote in elections. The right. U.S. is already lost to the socialists. BYU is more secular than the California state school system. Uh, KSL was a Marxist conspiracy. Yeah, he... Um, he, he believed in... Uh, yeah, the, uh, there's all kinds of interesting... So it's, a, like you said, fun read. Interesting yeah. stuff. Good food I for mean, thought. It is Think about where you're getting your information and why we... And Definitely. who we allow to give us that information. And these things that we repeat, where are they coming from? You know, the, the article talks about how a lot of curriculum that was formed after this time is kind of in the fear, like the fury of um, anti-socialism and kind of the communist scare, even though, you know, it's in the 70s and 80s. It's still very much during that time where leaders are impacted. And sometimes the way that they interpret theology is more anti-communist than pro-Christ. Yeah. Uh, not all yeah. the times, but it's just a good example of how our culture impacts our theology. And we shouldn't just assume that our reading of theology, um, because it reflects our culture, is necessarily correct. Yeah. So we'll link to it. Ben Spackman's, a, I, I've liked a lot of his articles. So check that out, everybody. Let's move over quickly to By Common Consent, article here by Sam Brunson, another we've featured a lot of his posts on here. I like Sam. He writes good content. Uh, Butts in pews? Question mark. So the gist of it essentially is um, 
he's wondering why Zoom Church is being shut down in some situations, and what's like what's the what's the driving force mm-hmm. behind that? Because some places still have it, which is interesting to me. We've got rid of Zoom in my ward back in like July across oh, the board. Really? We have not it's not an option at all. You don't. Okay. There's no. There's nothing. But I talked to a lot of people in even in Utah and elsewhere where there's still a Zoom option going on for individuals, which I think is fascinating, especially because we've talked a lot of, you know, we talk a lot about uh, sociocultural issue leanings in certain places. So I think it's interesting they'd offer something like that in some places like Utah compared to, you know, Northern Virginia. Uh, either way, after he gets through some content talking about how, like, you know, basically like it's ridiculous you wouldn't have online church during the Omicron wave. Uh, for example. But in a post-pandemic world, he's saying, I can't think of a single compelling reason to eliminate an online church option. Um, and he does recognize that for most of us, in-person church is a better experience. I think that's that's true, right? That's fine. But you know, there's a lot of perks to having online church. You have surgery, you're home, you're sick, whatever. You can still watch something. Um, our Zoom culture can make it as such so that if you're back blessing a baby in your ward, you could stream it to people who couldn't be there. I mean, like we, we didn't have that because we blessed our kid like right in the early days of the pandemic when my, my youngest was born. Um, but yeah, we did the whole blessing on zoom and my and friends from around the country and even some relatives in Japan, people tuned in and got to see it. We didn't do that before the pandemic, you know, you just invite people to church and if they can't be there, well, you know, so be it. That's it. Mm-hmm. So, so he goes into a lot of reasons like why we'd be against this. Of course, there's probably inertia and comfort. Like we're just, we're accustomed to in-person church and that makes sense. Uh, maybe budget's a question because how do you count, you know, ward attendant, your budget for the ward is based on sacrament, meaning attendance. How do you count that if it's Zoom numbers or not? There's a lot of things you can get on here. And I can see the cases for uh, why you would continue with online church. I think a lot just kind of wanted to get back to something resembling what they'd call as normal. Though I do think the more I've thought about this more though, Patricia, there's a certain irony to me that in the past few years, we've switched around. We do come follow me. We do home-centered, church-supported, right? But if someone were to dare say, cool, I want my home-centric church to be me at home teaching my kids and we can like tune in to sacraments and stuff like that. It's funny to say like, no, 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 it's church-supported, but church-supported means you need to be here physically for two hours, which is better than three. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but- but I do think that's kind of an interesting thing when we keep trying to say like, you know, it's home focus. The church is to support it. At the same time, we're not quite really like willing to uh, sever the umbilical entirely in that in the in the case of of home centric church. But well, I like it, going in person. It's good to see people. I think for me, it's mostly like socialization, and it probably mm-hmm. helps me focus a little bit better because if I watch something on Zoom, it's like I'm sitting at my computer. It's way too tempting to just like open up some browser windows. I mean, it's not. It's the equivalent of staring at my phone during Elder's Quorum lesson if I'm there too. For but, sure, you know. But anyway. And this goes back to our conversation about the global religion piece is, you know, if the church is truly afraid people won't come back um, or wards, maybe they they sh- maybe they should be asking us why people don't want to come back and changing that instead of uh, changing that instead and giving people every opportunity to participate in a way that's comfortable for them. Um, you know, there yeah. are lots of people who do have social anxiety, who are on vacation, which he mentions. Um, who are sick, um, you know, let them have the experience that they want to experience. And really, if you think that coming is important, maybe you just make it a really compelling experience and a fun environment. Give people the things that they're seeking for instead of trying to limit 
options that they find appealing to them. Yeah. And especially because like if church, if you feel like it can become rote and predictable, which it can in many cases, one, I hope ward leaders can think about that. Like you said, what they can do better. And then you can understand from the other side of it, like, look, church is just kind of like, it's a, it's pretty predictable by the numbers. So I can either do it in person or I can just do it at my house. I, I mean, I, in general, I like going for me, it's good. And the, for me having young kids, I like it because there's a whole part of it. Like I can conceptualize what it, the difference is between going in person and being at home. I'm an adult. I can do that. But if I never, if my kids never go, then for them, church is always on TV and that's all it would ever be. And so as a parent, I do, for me personally, like the idea of taking them and letting them have that experience. And like, if they were adults and wanted and wanted to be more remote, but they understood it better, okay. I just don't want to deprive them of like, yeah, this is like church. You come, we sing hymns, we have musical numbers, you have your lesson. They love going to primary, stuff like that. So, so um, inertia. Jeff, a little, a little bit, yeah, a, a little, little bit of least, inertia. I don't know if it's inertia as much as like I just want to make sure that my kids are too young to understand what the differences could be. So I don't want to take away one of the options and have them just like grow up without knowing that at all. Right, but now like, what? Right now they only have one option, and that's that is true. And right now they do, but I think it works. At the same time, we had state conference this weekend, and they actually did all of that remotely and allowed it. And who boy, was it fascinating to see how many people were on Zoom for like stake leadership meetings with a 70, like the kind you think they're going to be there. Oh, you know how Zoom has like pages you can scroll through. Uh-huh, there are like uh-huh. four, four or five pages. Of, Interesting. And this is a leadership meeting where where the number of attendees for this would be like what, like a small sacrament meeting number typically mm-hmm. for that kind of thing. So I imagine the chapel was uh, pretty, uh, pretty darn empty. Well, Which, you know, like I said, maybe they should think, why is this not a compelling experience for people to join and, and change the experience rather than kind of harking on people and, and trying yeah. to get them to participate in a way that- And that's in a non-pandemic world. In a pandemic world, I think we should say like, we just want people to be able to participate however <laughs> they feel comfortable doing so sure. and not force them to be in a potentially yeah. uh, dangerous public health situation, you know, knock on wood. Um, I'm going to pivot to one thing real quick. This, I thought this was interesting. The church did this. Only because it's semi-related. So six apostles gave devotionals over the weekend all at once. All at just once. all around the world. They they spoke to this basically the six different continental regions of the world. So, you know, sorry, research scientists in Antarctica. These remarks were not for you. They were for everybody else globally, <laughs> but not for you. Um, so you had Elder Uchtdorf, Elder Cook, Elder Christofferson, Elder Anderson, Elder Rasband, and Elder Renlund spoke to different groups. I won't go uh, wildly into detail. You can read their remarks. This was like simulcast, like globally, they all did different remarks. But one that I thought was interesting, um, Elder Uchtdorf and his wife spoke to the Asian and Pacific areas and the 70 who accompanied them on Sunday night, January 9th, was Elder Michael John Ute, who's from the Philippines. He's in the 70. I only found this fascinating when I read the article because this was Sunday night and Sunday afternoon, Michael John Ute was the presiding 70 in my state conference here in Virginia. And so he clearly was a very busy man that day and flew all the way back to Salt Lake and had to be prepped for, because he's there in person with them. I just love thinking about how, how, I just, I saw this, I'm like, he was, that, that's a busy weekend. That <laughs> I mean, is a busy weekend. Usually after state conferences, they still go and like meet with the state president some more, have a little, you know, tie off. And then they go to the airport in the afternoon and it's not like it's that long, like, Still, that's uh, Elder Ted was was very busy that weekend. Huh. That's all. That's all yeah. I had for that. I just wanted to. I just cracked me up. <laughs> 
Well, Patricia, anything else you want to hit upon before we go? No, those were um, those were the ones that stood out to me. Anything else you wanted to touch on, Jeff? Yes, two things. One, I absolutely am cracking up at this Facebook post by the Sisters in Zion. <laughs> oh, uh, this is just a bit of humor for all y'all here. <laughs> so this was... <laughs> This killed me. This killed me. And they deserve all 124 shares and 6,000 likes they got for it. It says, to the couple who showers after, who quote unquote, showers after church while the kids are napping, them kids ain't sleep. They told their primary class, it sounds like y'all are exercising with the water running. I'm not trying to be y'all's business saints, but some of y'all might want to add more background noise, switch up your workout routine, or bribe your kids with hush money because sharing time is something else these days. Is this widespread? Mom and dad need to take a shower. Is this? I don't know if this is the thing that they that people say, but this just cracked me up. Yeah, I just love this exercise time. The comments are great too. Everyone's just like, "Oh, this losing a third hour put a wrench in our plans." When when our kids were in primary and young men, young women, we would go home during the second hour to shower and be back for the third. Yeah, there's there's there were some good comments on. Anyway, that. you know, I I my daughter's just beginning to speak, and which is adorable, and I love it. But there <laughs> there could be some drawbacks down the road. This is all about what primary kids say. This one's totally. This is like a non sequitur. One primary kid told me once all about his mom's diarrhea. <laughs> kids are awesome, and they tell cool. and they say everything. <laughs> Oh, this just kills me. So, uh, you know, mom and dad have to take a shower. Apparently, that's all. That's a line we all need to be using. Yeah. And the last thing I want to leave you with, uh, even though we are long right now, a fascinating piece out of St. George, Utah. Oh, yeah. Com. You didn't want to miss this one, Patricia. You know you didn't want to miss this one. <laughs> Relationship connection. And also, I, as one commenter said, I feel for the woman who's in this stock photo that they used because everyone's going to think she's the problem. The headline... <laughs> How can I know if I'm having inappropriate feelings for my bishop? And it's easy to laugh. I mean, okay, I get it. But I can also get why this could be a concern for some people. If you're in a situation, it's a bishop. You're meeting one-on-one. You're members of the opposite sex. You you talk about deep matters a lot of time, deep personal matters, uh, emotional and spiritual things. And you can develop a bond like that and... And if, how do you, you know, realize, like, are you feeling romantic feelings for your bishop? Or are you feeling something different? I like that she's saying, the person who wrote in, I do think my he is an attractive man, too. He's really impacted my life. But how can I make sure I don't get emotionally attached to the point that it would be damaging to my own marriage or I'm committing adultery in my heart? I think that's a fair question. I mean, it's a fair question. I think it's a concern. I could imagine a lot of bishops, those of you who have been in that role, have... I don't know if there's been a lot of like mollifying concerns from your wife or, or how hard it is being perhaps the wife of a bishop. And if you wonder the fact that your husband might be, you know, ha- having lots of very close and emotionally intimate experiences with other women, which can be a dangerous thing for a marriage. So um, I actually think this is worth exploring and it's a yeah, good question to ask. And I think you like it too, because the author, uh, the the person to write, write back was um, a Jeff. As this, Spelled the, the first, same way. This is actually the first I noticed that. Okay, but, but I do. Good on you, Geoff Stirrer. I should write him a note and say, yeah. "Jeff, unite." And you know, Jeff, you you did you did uh, help me see that it is a. I've never experienced kind of this uh, 
this feeling that she's feeling, but you did bring up some good points. And I do actually think his answers, um, some questions that you should ask yourself are probably good for any relationship. And, you know, I know that uh, many people think about this in their professional lives um, and, you know, what's appropriate and inappropriate to do one-on-one with a member of the opposite sex. So I think these are some pretty good questions to ask yourself and keeping those relationships um, appropriate. And I think it is good guidance. You know, I've had, you know, really well-meaning male leaders not want to go to lunch with me one-on-one and to oh, be yeah, the honest, old, the, old, the old Mike Pence approach, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, and to sure. be honest, I yeah. get it, but it had put me at a disadvantage professionally, where my mm-hmm. opinions, uh, my opinions mm-hmm. weren't known. He didn't seek my advice, and so I, I do think that there is. This is a good example. Her question is a relationship with a business or with a bishop. That's a totally appropriate situation, and you're not going to say don't meet one on one with him unless you know, there's a specific situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think mm-hmm. it's good to think through these questions about all relationships where, and think through how you can, um, you can have relationships with the opposite gender, have the appropriate lines um, and bring, you know, just, just make sure everything's going, going okay. He, he answers, he asks some questions that you can ask yourself. Do you conceal affection? From your husband? Are you Mm. nervous to share these experiences with your husband? Do you go out of your way to spend time alone? Um, Are you preoccupied with how you present yourself? Um, So I think these are good questions, even a professional. Um, And as somebody who does work and does does need people who are predominantly men in leadership positions to take my opinion seriously, yeah, I think it is good guidance for how do you still maintain these relationships, but do it appropriately. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the Geoff connection just you know <laughs> just really knocked it fe- out of the park. For feather you. in the cap, right? <laughs> yeah, don't, that was yeah. I, I went into that one almost as a laugh, but I think there is some good stuff to discuss there. Well, it's been quite a week, Patricia. Every week I go into the show hoping to make it only forty-five to fifty minutes for our listeners. I think that's every my week fault. I, I no. think it's my fault. We've got content. There's a lot. There's a lot of good content this week. Okay. There's good discussion this week. Look at all the good things we talked about here. I mean, yeah, Mormonism is a global religion. LGBTQ saints and dating and the line. Like we've we've had some good discussions about okay, things. Okay, good. Important, important issues. <laughs> well, well, thanks for indulging me, uh, Twim Nation. Is that what you call people, Twim Nation? Uh, the sisters lean on that more than I do. Okay. I'll call them Twimsters, Twimites. Twimsters. I should call them Twimites. Twimites, yes. All about the ites. <laughs> anyway, uh, folks, thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Can't do it without you. So please share the show with everyone you know and love and have them share it with two friends and them with two friends and build your <laughs> downstream of Twim. It's very important that you do that. If you do this, you will be blessed. Seriously, so blessed. Uh, Patricia, delightful to have you once more. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, everyone. Yep. Good and, to talk uh, to you again. We'll talk to you all later. I'm Jeff. That was Patricia. This has been This Week in Mormons, a non-LDS living podcast. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. See you later. Bye-bye.